This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, I'm Jude Rogers, and welcome to The Bunker, your need to know on news and politics. After a busy day, there's nothing lots of people like to do more to wind down than fire up a podcast or a TV programme about brutality and murder. But why? A fascination with the macabre has been with us as human beings from ghost stories and folk songs around the campfire. But the true crime phenomenon of recent years has become something else. Big business. From the Serial Podcast's original 2014 season, bringing over 68 million listeners in less than a year, to the Emmy-winning Netflix's Making a Murder series and beyond, these shows shine a huge spotlight on real-life cases. And often their audiences become highly participatory, attempting to take part in the unsolved mysteries themselves. This could encourage the police to consider cold cases, but it has also caused widespread distress. See the case of Nicola Bully, the 45-year-old British woman who went missing in January 2023, and the spate of TikTok and YouTube sleuths going to her village, which led the police superintendent in charge to say how wannabe detectives significantly detracted from the investigation. Does true crime make society sick? Here to discuss our contemporary fascination with it is Tanya Horrick, author of Justice On Demand, True Crime in the Digital Streaming Era, She's also Professor of Film and Feminist Media Studies at Anglia Ruskin University. Hi there, Tanya. Hi, Jude. Thanks for having me. Now, I'm stealing myself and stealing the listeners for this, you know, obviously. Tanya, these true crime stories that have become so huge in recent years often involve missing persons cases and gruesome murders. But some people find them weirdly comforting to watch. Is that right? You know, it seems to me that that's the case. Can you tell us why? Sure. I mean, I think that's right. I think some people do find them comforting. And while I'm not a psychologist, I think there's something to the fact that listening about really violent cases, hearing about the worst in humanity, it can somehow make you feel safer in your own life. I think that there's something to that. And I think another reason why people find it comforting might have something to do with the reassuring narrative frame through which these stories are often told. So in other words, we're invited to identify with the detectives who are trying to solve a murder case, or we're invited to try to tease out the motivations for why such crimes are committed in the first place. And I think that that can be satisfying. So it's making these abstract, terrifying things sort of solid and concrete, I guess. There was a piece in The Guardian recently, a column by Molly Goodfellow, who wrote that it's highly likely that most of us know at least one woman who has been a victim of sexual assault, domestic abuse or other gendered violence. And the true crime genre has thrived on this. I thought before we get into the ethics of that, most of us will have had some experience of somebody going through something quite terrifying, I guess, at one remove or several people's remove. You know, we'll know of those situations. 
Mm, yeah, definitely. I mean, we know that violence against women is prevalent in our culture. And I think that while some true crime shows can be quite triggering for people, I also think that they can be a means of trying to process our cultural fears and concerns around violence. So I think that that's another significant factor. Now, you begin your book by talking about how the audience for true crime includes lots of women, which I find fascinating. And I I am somebody who will watch things that absolutely terrify me. Why is there that female interest in it? Yeah, that's the received wisdom is that women are really drawn to the genre. And the theory is that it's because it gives them some sort of way of processing their fears. It gives them some sort of sense of power or control given the wider cultural environment in which violence against girls and women is all pervasive. Like watching these shows enables women to process their anxieties about this. I mean, I think that's quite interesting. I think it's also significant to look at the kind of communities that have sprung up around some of these true crime podcasts. So you have a podcast like My Favorite Murder, and you have a community of women online who talk about criminal cases and the impact that it has on them. And I think that there's a real power in sort of sharing and talking about fears and anxiety. And these true crime shows and podcasts become a way of opening up a conversation and for women to come together to discuss this. So in some cases, you could even say that it's created a cultural space for talking about the phenomenon of violence against women in a more politicized way. I'm fascinated with how modern media makes this connection to true crime different. You wrote in your book that trailers for true crime documentaries operate as machines for generating effect. You know, I thought it's interesting this sort of exploitation, should I say, that might go on, you know, how Netflix has created a specific house style for its trailers, positioning the audience's viewers with a job to do. You know, there's there's something quite unpleasant <laughs> lurking in all that, I guess. Yeah, there is something exploitative for sure. I mean, the central argument of my book is that one of the reasons or the key reason why true crime as a genre has come to popularity in this moment, I mean, it's not new that it's popular, it's always been popular, but there's a renewed interest in it. And that's because of digital networked culture, and the way in which the genre feeds into participatory media culture. So this idea that we can become involved. And we live in a culture of detection. Many of us have social media accounts. We go on to Google. We search information about people. We have this sense of ourselves as internet sleuths. And true crime as a genre feeds into that, doesn't it? And Netflix and other streaming platforms are capitalizing on that. So in my book, when I was talking about trailers, I was talking specifically about the Amanda Knox documentary. I don't know if you've seen that. But when Netflix advertised that, it very cannily came up with two trailers, one for those who think Amanda Knox is guilty and one for those who think she's innocent. And I think that was very, you know, cynically trying to tap into this online culture of judgment where you're for, you're against, and you argue about it online. And I think that this true crime culture feeds into that. And a lot of these true crime shows are spread over multiple episodes. You know, they're not the the kind of thing you find on terrible cable channels for an hour that have been hashed together. You know, they're critically acclaimed, they're award nominated, award winning. But this, the detail that they go into is quite different, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. They're made for binge watching. So 
Netflix, of course, has made itself, you know, its whole reputation is, you know, we're a streaming platform, you can binge watch shows, bingeability, and true crime is a key part of that. So people sit down to binge watch a true crime series that's spread over 10 episodes. And there are cliffhangers at the end of every episode and plot twists. And this is what people have come to expect. It gives them like an effective rush. It's a thrill. And I think there are a lot of yeah, ethical questions that come up around that, this whole true crime industrial complex and how we're we're on the hunt for the next true crime series that we can binge watch and what that means and how that changes the way in which we relate to real life cases as well. One term I found really fascinating that you referred to in your book was wound culture, which sounds very gothy. <laughs> you write about the true crime being the most popular genre of wound culture. This is a term that Mark Seltzer, in which people gather around scenes of violence or trauma. Can you tell us a little bit more about that term? Yeah, it's quite interesting. So as you say, it's from Mark Seltzer, who wrote a book about serial killers and how we like to gather around the site of trauma. And I think that that's true. And I think that this raises a lot of questions about what we're doing when we're gathering around these true crime cases. And increasingly in this moment that we're in where online and offline culture, like the lines between online and offline have become totally blurred, it raises a lot of questions. So I don't know if you're familiar with the horrible university murders that happened in Idaho, in um, Moscow, in the US, but there was a true crime community that sprung up around that online. But the thing is, it doesn't stay online. There's this true crime tourism where people start going to the community, visiting the community, and it's awful for the people who live there. So I think the way in which people are now gathering around these cases, and we saw this with the Nicola Bully one as well, didn't we? So yes, people were on TikTok making their videos and gathering around the site of this horrible story. But then they were also traveling there physically to make their TikTok videos. So there's a lot of ethical questions that we as a society need to be asking about what we're doing here when we come together through such stories. There's also almost this desire to create something out of it, to kind of make something good out of it, I guess. That's, this is what these people are trying to do. I suppose in some instances that is true. Like there is hashtag activism. There is the possibility of harnessing social media platforms for good. I do believe that. I do believe that people can gather in a positive way to further social justice causes, but it's just the complicated nature of it where it's not always going that direction. <laughs> so it's trying to prize out how can we harness social media for good? Because often for every instance where there's a good example of a case that you know, has been some light has been shed on sort of violence against women or something. There's an example where a digital mob has formed. So for instance, in 2013, with the Boston uh, Marathon bombing, people gathered on Reddit, identified the wrong suspect, and it turned into a huge mess. So it's very complicated. It's almost the way some of these um, stories are presented on television. You know, people see these tropes of fiction in how they're structured and almost, you know, get those lines get very blurred. What do you think the true scale of the effects of the true crime genre are? You know, is it just a vocal minority who are really engaged? Mm. I think it's a vocal minority who become super involved in digital sleuthing. Like I think that there are very few people who become 
like really intensely involved with trying to solve cases. I think in general, it's more of just a general interest of going on Twitter and seeing what people are tweeting and maybe tweeting some random comments. I'm not sure how many of us will go to great lengths to try to solve crimes, but I think a lot of us will follow cases with interest. So yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to assess how many people are actually going down that route. And I think what you just said about the blurring of the lines between fiction and real life is also really interesting. Like how do you define, like what's the difference between content creation So going on TikTok to make a video about a criminal case because you want to get likes and you want to get more followers, and then going on TikTok to make a video because you are really concerned about social justice issues and you want to highlight issues around violence against women. So how do you draw the line in this moment that we're in, I think, between content creation and digital sleuthing and social justice? It's very tricky to unpick. You recently gave a paper on the Nicola Bully case at a workshop called Trial by Media, which is trying to work out whether online sleuthing could be harnessed for social good or not. Now, has digital sleuthing been effective in aiding any police investigations? Yeah, I mean, I think that it has. I think that there are cases that people can point to where digital sleuthing and these true crime podcasts have played a role in justice being done. So for instance, I don't know if you've seen the Netflix series, Don't F with Cats, Hunting an Internet Killer. And it's all about that. It's all about how this group of internet sleuths tracked down this Canadian killer called Luca Magnata. And then another example people point to would be I'll Be Gone in the Dark. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's about Michelle McNamara. She was a true crime writer and she was also a digital sleuth. And she became involved in this digital sleuthing community online that eventually did play a role in tracking down the Golden State Killer who had gone undetected for decades. So there are examples and that's when people get quite excited and they think, oh, see, this genre is actually doing social good. We shouldn't be so worried about it. But as I was saying earlier, for every example where digital sleuthing has helped, there's another example where it's hindered. And it's just trying to weigh that up. So another example is like the Teacher's Pet podcast from Australia. So on the one hand, that podcast really kept that case in the public eye. So it was about a woman who was murdered by her husband. And for years, there was no justice. He was just living his life, as it were. And then this podcast was done by a serious journalist. And he really, really dug down into it and investigated it and found, you know, found a lot of evidence. And this renewed public interest in the case, the police were like, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna (laughs) dig back into this. And he's now in jail. But at the same time, the podcast compromised aspects of the trial. And it was actually mentioned at the trial, they were like, you know what, this almost ruined the whole case. So I think that's like a really striking example of how, yes, it helped, but it all almost destroyed the whole trial because you have these podcasts in the public domain, you have people talking about them and how, how does justice work? Like how does a jury work? How does a trial work in these, in, in this, in this kind of climate? And I think this is, we're, we're starting to reach a real crisis point with this, like the police with the Nicola Bully case, they, they just couldn't cope with all of the online interests. They say that it hindered their investigation, and I think it did. 
But equally, police are going to have to figure out a way to deal with this because it's not going to go away. Like people going on TikTok to talk about cases, it's not going to go away. So the police have to work out how to deal with this. The legal system has to work out how to deal with this. The courts have to work out how to deal with this. So I think this is why this, this issue of trial by media, while not new, it's really intensifying now, this question of media involvement in court cases. I wonder if it's got something to do with a kind of general distrust in authority and kind of um, institutions as well. Absolutely. This is another really interesting thing about the true crime moment that we're in is that people don't trust the police. It's at an all-time low, isn't it? And you saw that with the Nicola Bully case. In previous iterations of true crime from previous decades, you'll see a very different sort of representation of the police. It's like the police were looked up to, there was trust in them. So often you'd have true crime series that would end with the police coming in and saving the day. You won't see that now. People don't trust the police. People don't have faith in the system, often quite rightly, to be fair. So I think that that's another just area that we have to contend with now or to think about or to theorize. So in the Nicola Bully case, people didn't trust the police. So they started spinning all of these wild theories. In the end, what the police said from the start was right. What It was a tragic accident, but you could really see how people did not believe in them. And they felt that they needed to take justice into their own hands, as it were. What kind of clues do digital sleuths use to solve these cases? Well, I think there's a multitude of things that they can do, can't they? I mean, you can use Google Maps. They form Facebook groups. They form WhatsApp groups. They like crowdsource knowledge. Like there's all sorts of things you can do. And another thing I've noticed a lot recently is this sort of like analysis of body language. So again, in the Nicola Bully case, when her partner was was speaking to journalists, people would then go online and analyze his body language as though they had some sort of training in this. And they were comparing his body language to the American Chris Watts, who murdered his his wife and two children, and they were comparing the videos and analyzing the body language. There's this whole array of materials available online. That's the other thing, right? So while armchair detection is not new, internet sleuthing is different in that you just go online and in one or two clicks, you can be looking at crime scene photos. You can be finding all sorts of information so that you can feel that you're participating in a criminal investigation. And indeed, you are. You can even go on eBay and track down items that belong to killers, all sorts of things that you can do. Wow. So with all this interest, you know, is there anything halting the tide of true crime? <laughs> there doesn't seem to be, does there? I mean, like, there, I true, true crime TikTok is so huge now. I think it has a billion views. But... I think if there is anything halting it, it's just the fact that we as a society start need to start thinking about the ethics of it more in general. So for instance, a recent thing that's come up is this issue of victims' families. So when the Dahmer series came out on Netflix, a lot of the victims' families were really upset about that. And I've noticed that there are new questions being asked of the genre in that regard. It's like, do we have an obligation to the families to be more respectful, especially now when people can go on social media platforms and look up information about the families and track them down? So should that halt 
or should that change the way in which like television producers or podcast producers think about what they're doing? Because sometimes they put together these shows simultaneously, like as the case is happening, they'll be throwing together a Netflix series. And should there be questions asked about that? Like what, what do we owe to the family? Do we have to be more careful? But it doesn't seem like there's anything halting it at the moment. Tanya, that's been fascinating. Thank you so much for joining me on The Bunker. Thank you, Jude. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please support The Bunker on Patreon. For as little as £3 a month, you can get extras, including getting the episodes ad-free. I'm Jude Rogers, and thank you for listening. Daily was written and presented by Jude Rogers. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich and the assistant producer was Adam Wright. Audio production was by me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.